TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. The Framing of Leonard Peltier. Chris Hedges interviews Judge Kevin Sharp. On Friday, January 28, 2022, Leonard Peltier's attorney confirmed what had been feared for several months. Peltier, who is incarcerated at the Coleman Federal Correctional Complex in Florida, had been diagnosed with COVID. Since Peltier also suffers from heart problems and diabetes, this diagnosis may become his death sentence if he is not released now. Peltier has been in prison for 45 years without any evidence, as we now know from Freedom of Information Records, that he committed a crime. He was charged with the 1975 murder of two FBI agents during a shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation. There are few political prisoners in the U.S. who had and continue to have as much support for their release. Pope Francis, the Dalai Lama, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and Coretta Scott King have all asked for him to be free. Even the U.S. attorney who helped put Peltier in prison in the 1970s, James Reynolds, has written a recent letter to President Joe Biden asking to grant Peltier clemency. Reynolds confirms that federal officials never had evidence that Peltier committed a crime. Leonard Peltier was born in 1944 on the Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation in North Dakota. At the age of nine, he was enrolled at an Indian school and forced to speak English only. In 1965, Peltier relocated to Seattle, Washington, and worked as a welder, construction worker, and co-owner of an auto shop. In Seattle, Peltier became involved in protecting Native American civil rights. It was Dennis Banks who invited him to join AIM, the American Indian Movement, in 1972. Three years later, Peltier traveled as a member of AIM to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to try to help reduce the violence among political opponents and protect the traditional Indian families. Leonard Peltier's COVID diagnosis has given the movements to free him a new sense of urgency. Among the recent articles and reports is this interview by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Chris Hedges of Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge and now Leonard Peltier's attorney. Here's Chris Hedges' introduction of his program. Welcome to On Contact. Today we discuss the case of America's longest serving political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. Leonard Peltier, a leader in the American Indian movement now 78 years old, has been in prison for 44 years, charged with the murder of two FBI agents during a gun battle in 1975 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Peltier in his memoir, Prison Writings, My Life is My Sundance, said he participated in the shootout with the FBI agents, but insists he did not kill them. His two co-defendants were acquitted based on self-defense. 
The FBI, at the time of the raid, was determined that Peltier would be found guilty. Peltier's trial was riddled with inconsistencies and the withholding of exculpatory evidence. The FBI, it was later learned, threatened and coerced witnesses to lie and use these false statements to convict Peltier. Most jurists who have examined the case consider the trial deeply flawed. James Reynolds, who was the U.S. attorney who helped put Peltier in prison in the 1970s, has written a letter to President Joe Biden and asked the president to grant Peltier clemency. I write today from a position rare for a former prosecutor to beseech you to commute the sentence of a man who I helped put behind bars, Reynolds wrote to the president. With time and the benefit of hindsight, I have realized that the prosecution and continued incarceration of Mr. Peltier was and is unjust. We were not able to prove that Mr. Peltier personally committed any offense on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He added that granting clemency would help mend, quote, the broken relationship between Native Americans and the U.S. government. I urge you, he wrote, to take a step towards healing a wound that I had a part in making. Peltier, who was in a Florida prison and who became eligible for parole in 1993, is in very poor health. If Peltier is not released soon, he will most likely die in prison, serving his two life sentences. Joining me to discuss the Peltier case is Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge and one of Peltier's lawyers. So, Kevin, how did you come to this case? And I just want to throw in for people who may not know, uh, you resigned your federal judgeship after six years because you were being forced under the law, under three strikes you're out, to send people to prison for life that you felt did not deserve life. Well, it's interesting because it all starts from the issues that I had with mandatory minimums. And I had sentenced a young man, 23-year-old young man named Chris Young, to life in prison on a third strike for a nonviolent drug offense. And that was really the catalyst that led me to ultimately resign my lifetime appointment and start working toward criminal justice reform. Ultimately, we were able to get clemency for Chris Young, and he is out today. I had the good fortune to meet him at the airport when he returned, uh, and he did not die in prison. That involved Kim Kardashian and others, uh, other celebrities that then made the news, which then led to Peltier supporters contacting me and asking me to take a look at this case. I do these clemency petitions pro bono. And so I looked at it. Someone sent me the entire file, the FBI memos, the court transcripts, the judicial opinions. And so I'm looking at this not as someone who really knows anything about or much about this case. And so I start reading this with fresh eyes. And as I start with the transcript and the judicial opinions, I am floored with the number of constitutional violations. You know, I had served in the military. I had worked for Congress. I served in the judiciary. I'd spent really the, the better part of my professional career as a public servant for the United States government. And so what I saw just shocked me and outraged me at what was happening and that this man was still in prison. And that's what led me to, to then say, well, okay, what, what can I do? And I took on Mr. Peltier's case. 
Before we go into the legal anomalies, of which there are many, right. let's talk about what life was like on Pine Ridge in the 1970s. You had a tribal government uh, led by Wilson, the, the goon squad. It was a reign of terror, I think within two years. Uh, 60 uh, residents of Pine Ridge were allegedly murdered by these enforcers. They were given weapons uh, and support by the FBI. But talk about that kind of climate of terror because it's important to the case. Right, you really can't understand Pine Ridge without understanding the history and what brought everyone to that place on you know June 26, 1975. You have to understand the 1970s and the violence and turmoil that was taking place. And then you really need to understand the history of the American government's relationship, if you can call it that, it's at least it's, it's dealings with the Native American community. And so you had hundreds of years that had kind of led you to this place. You need to understand the first wounded knee and then understand what happened at Wounded Knee in 1973 and then understand the violence that was taking place in and around Pine Ridge because of the goon squad that you talked about. So in some ways, it's very much like, like Vietnam that you've got the United States government having picked a side in uh, local disputes between the what was known, they called themselves the goon squad, the guardians of the Oglala nation, and the traditional Native Americans that live there there was tension between those two groups. The United States government, for obvious reasons, picked the side that continued to lease land back to them, right? That did not resist what the United States government wanted to do there. And you dropped in young agents, uh, federal agents armed who were uh, had no understanding of the history of the people of that area. And it became very violent they were providing, uh, as you mentioned, weapons, ammunition, intelligence to the goon squad who did whatever they wanted to do to the, to the population. And so the place was a powder keg. The federal agents went from about half a dozen at one point up to over 100 federal agents, which then added to the tension of the area. And so it was, you know, of course there was going to be uh, violence in the area. You cannot, you cannot uh, support that group and and create what was known as the reign of terror and not expect something like this to happen. And what was the blowback? Peltier did not grow up on Pine Ridge. He was one of those Indian a AIM activists who came from the outside. Right. So AIM was invited or uh, asked to come to Pine Ridge because the federal government was not protecting, providing any protection or assistance to the traditional uh, Native Americans that were there. And so they asked AIM members to come in and help them. That's what had happened. There was also a trial going on in Custer uh, related to some riots earlier, but that's why Leonard and Dino Butler and Bob Rabideau were there. They were there to help the, the traditionals who lived there. And they were there camping on Jumping Bull Ranch. And that morning, for whatever reason, two agents came onto the reservation. They claimed to have been 
wanting to serve a warrant on a man named Jimmy Eagle, who was wanted for stealing a pair of cowboy boots. Well, I, I question whether or not that's even a federal crime that the government should be getting involved in. It was a pair of cowboy boots. There better have been some really nice cowboy boots. They didn't seem to be too concerned about the murders that were taking place, but they were worked up about Jimmy Eagle and radioed in that they were following a red pickup truck that fit the description of, of Jimmy Eagle's uh, pickup. That's when, having followed this truck onto the reservation, that's when the shootout started. The, uh, the agents were in unmarked cars and in plain clothes. You were unable to distinguish them from goon squad members, right? And so anytime there are cars or people pulling onto the reservation that are known not to be part of that group that lives there, there's going to be tension and a shootout started. No one knows who fired the first shots. No one knows who shot the agents. And, and also, it's worth mentioning, there was another individual, a young Indian, a 21-year-old boy named Stunts, who was also killed. No one investigated his killing. And that's kind of where we are. There was, a, there was a shootout. The United States government ultimately admitted they do not know who shot the agents. Um, but someone had to be charged and convicted. Two agents were, were dead, and so was Mr. Stunts. You know, that then leads to this, to this domino effect that ultimately results in let's convict Leonard Peltier at any cost. Peltier was a person of interest for the FBI for some time because he was a leader in the American Indian movement and he was clearly under surveillance, he'd been followed, he'd been, he'd been targeted before this event. That's right, as had other members of AIM, right? So COINTELPRO, you have to go back to all of this, it takes you back to J. Edgar Hoover days. COINTELPRO, which was the organization within the FBI that was running counterintelligence against our own citizens, had put AIM on their list, uh, along with unions and Martin Luther King and the student nonviolent movement, and the Black Panthers, AIM was part of that. And that then led to Leonard Peltier also being included on that watch list. But, but and I've seen these memos, there, were, there was a concerted effort written in FBI memos to really harass the, the leaders of AIM charge them with crimes, keep them tied up in court. And these are, I'm paraphrasing, but, but these are essentially the memos. Let's keep them tied up in court so that they will not be able to protest against the United States government. And that's what they did. And that's why Leonard was part of that. Leonard, Leonard was, was being watched and was also set up. So one of the things that happened with Leonard and part of the problem with his trial uh, for the Pine Ridge shootout was that he was charged with attempted murder in Milwaukee, which was all a setup as part of the United States government's efforts to keep them tied up in criminal proceedings uh, so that they could not protest their own treatment. And so he had been attacked in a, in a diner in Milwaukee by undercover police officers or off-duty police officers, and then charged with attempted murder of those police officers. Now, that trial wouldn't take place until after his Pine Ridge trial. But the judge in the Pine Ridge trial let in the evidence that he had been charged with attempted murder, which was something that was very unusual and highly prejudicial. It's 
to tell a jury he's been charged with attempted murder. He's a bad guy. He was ultimately tried on that, and it came out that the whole thing was a setup. In fact, one of the police officers that had attacked him had so hurt his own hands that he was off work for three weeks because his hands were all broken from beating Mr. Peltier. But ultimately, one of the police officers, the girlfriends who was there that night, uh, came forward and said, no, this was a setup. He saw Mr. Peltier and his associates sitting over in the corner and, and told us exactly what he was going to do. And then they went and did it. So those were the kind of tactics that were being run against them. Uh, so let's go into the trial. I think you uh, laid out what the environment was like. The egregious uh, violations were numerous. Perhaps you can tell us what they were. Well, and part of that, you have to understand the first two trials, because Leonard fled to Canada, believing, rightfully so, that he couldn't get a fair trial in this country. He fled to Canada. Canada would not extradite him because there was not enough evidence, really there was no evidence, that he had killed anyone. So the case had been transferred to a judge in North Dakota, and he went ahead and tried Leonard's two co-defendants. Mr. Robideau and Mr. Butler. He also let in, this judge let in, the evidence of the reign of terror that we talked about earlier, the FBI misconduct, the threats and intimidation. Part of uh, the way they were able to get the, um, the indictments against them was to get three young boys who were there that day to lie about what they saw. And so by lying to the grand jury, they were able to get the indictments. Those three individuals recanted that testimony during the first trial. And that, along with the evidence of the reign of terror and the FBI's involvement in that, the jury acquitted them based on self-defense. So now you've got a, a very angry U.S. Attorney's Office and FBI that the people they claimed had killed these and their agents had, had been acquitted based on self-defense. And so there's another FBI memo that says it's now time, based on what happened, we have to turn the entire resources of the United States government into convicting Leonard Peltier, right? Not into finding out what happened, not finding out who shot who, uh, into convicting Leonard Peltier. But the first thing they've got to do is get Leonard back from Canada. Canadians won't extradite him. There's no evidence. So they need some evidence. And what they do is they get a woman named Myrtle Porbear to sign an affidavit saying she is Leonard's girlfriend. She was there that day. She saw Leonard shoot them. That was enough as it would have been had that been a truthful affidavit for the Canadian government to extradite him. Of course they would. Turns out though, Myrtle Poor Bear never met Leonard Peltier and she wasn't there that day. She had no way of knowing who Leonard was. The FBI drafted this along with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Having been a federal judge, I know how these affidavits work. That ultimately, uh, the FBI drafted this affidavit, handed it to Myrtle Porbear, and told her to sign it. Otherwise, they were going to take her child away from her. She had a young daughter. Well, we know that's not an idle threat because we now know about as as most of the native all of the native community is known for uh, centuries that the United States government would snatch children and send them to, to these boarding schools. So that was a real threat. And, you know, Myrtle Poor Bear signed this affidavit. 
ultimately the Canadian government, when it was discovered that this affidavit was a lie, wanted to know what happened. The then U.S. attorney, not James Reynolds, but the, his, his predecessor, said he was as shocked as anyone at this false affidavit. There was not one scintilla of truth in it and that her FBI controllers, as he called them, had drafted this. Well, that's not how that works. They knew this affidavit was a lie. And that's where it kind of starts. And that gets Leonard extradited. Now, they've also got a problem because the boys who said they saw Leonard and his co-defendants going down the hill to uh, shoot these agents have also all recanted. So that evidence is gone. There is no evidence that Leonard was there. The evidence at the first trial and as, uh, as recorded by the office back when the two agents were chasing who they believed to be Jimmy Eagle in the red pickup truck, now they've got to change that. So that evidence gets changed and they say, well, they thought it was a red pickup truck, but they're city boys from Denver. They don't know what a red pickup truck is. It was actually an orange and white scout, you know, right? So they, they start reverse engineering their evidence. Well, what does Leonard own? Oh, he owns his orange and white SUV. Okay, well, then they weren't chasing a, a red pickup truck. They were chasing the SUV. The whole trial comes down to one piece of evidence. The U.S. attorney has one piece of evidence, a ballistics test. And their expert gets on the stand and says, we would have liked to have done a firing pin test, which would be the most accurate ballistics test we could do and prove it. But all we've got is a shell casing. And the shell casing tells us, the shell casing test tells us that this shell casing that we found at the scene came from Leonard Peltier's weapon or a weapon like the one he had. And that was really their entire evidence. That was their case. They've got this. He did it. Turns out they learned years later through a Freedom of Information Act request that the uh, FBI had done a firing pin test and it showed that it was not Leonard Peltier's weapon. They hid it. They buried it. They never turned it over. It's a, it's a blatant constitutional violation. But at that time, the standard on appeal was different than it is now. Today, the standard is did withholding the exculpatory evidence deprive the defendant of a fair trial. And of course it did. At that time, though, the standard of review was, did withholding the evidence, or had the evidence not been withheld, would the jury probably have come to a different conclusion? And that's where the Court of Appeals says, we can't say that they probably would have. They possibly would have, but we can't say probably. But now the U.S. attorney doesn't have the one piece of evidence, right? Now they it shows that it wasn't Leonard who shot the agents. So they changed their theory to one of aiding and abetting. He was there and he was shooting. Well, then the question becomes, well, who did he aid and abet? Because his co-defendants were acquitted based on self-defense, which means there was no crime. So who did he aid and abet? The, the assistant U.S. attorney on the case says, I don't know, maybe himself, which is a legal impossibility. So essentially what you have is a guy who was there. That's what he had two life sentences for. He was there. Had the jury known that he was not the one who pulled the trigger, uh, it would have been a completely different case. It's certainly he would have gotten a fair trial. Um, and, that's, and that's what the Constitution requires. Just give the man a fair trial. Instead, you've got someone who spent over four decades in prison for, for a case that you know, Mr. Reynolds acknowledges they don't know what happened and there's no evidence that he did it.
I want to talk about the FBI because there was a possibility of clemency. It was on Clinton's desk, uh, was raised with President Trump, President Obama, and the FBI has consistently intervened to block any clemency. Can you talk about that process? Well, you're referring back when Clinton was taking a look at it, and all indications were that Clinton was going to sign clemency papers for the very reasons that we've talked about here today. Um, FBI agents, some retired, some active duty, picketed the White House. Now, set aside the legality of uh, on-duty FBI agents picketing and marching in front of the White House, but, but that obviously had a chilling effect. President Clinton had his own problems, as we all had to hear about for years and years, that probably made him very nervous about doing that. It's my understanding that the papers were, in fact, on his desk. The, the last day that they were going to be signed. And he probably, you know, it's all speculation, but we probably all have a pretty good idea of why he did it. You don't want to be seen as someone who is a, opposing what the FBI wants. We have less information about what happened with President Obama, but likely the same thing. The FBI is a very influential constituency of the President of the United States. Politics plays a role. Um, politics become more important than the Constitution at this point. And, I, you know, I get a lot of grief for this, but, but I, I, I believe that I am consistent on these things. I supported General Flynn's position that the charges should be dropped, or at least his guilty plea withdrawn, because they withheld exculpatory evidence. Regardless of what you think about General Flynn, it's what do you think about the Constitution, and I think the Constitution means something. And it means something here for Mr. Peltier, just like it does for General Flynn and anyone else who finds themselves in this position. And so with President Trump, we had some really productive, I thought, conversations going right up until the end. At the end of the day, for, for all of his talk, he cares what the FBI thinks. Um, and, and I think you cannot get away from the, the influence that that organization has. But the FBI this is, is a very different FBI, I believe, and they say they are, and I believe them, from the one it was in 1975, and that which still was under the influence of J. Edgar Hoover. We were only one FBI director removed from Hoover. They need to break from that. The FBI needs to step out of the way and really support clemency for, for Leonard because it's the only way they can finally move past the J. Edgar Hoover Pro days of the FBI. They need this as much as he does. They need to stop talking about this and talking about their own misconduct. You know, we're here talking about FBI misconduct that's not even uh, disputed anymore from decades ago. They cannot quit talking about this and move forward unless they support us in this, in this quest to, to send Mr. Peltier home. His health is terrible. You know, he's in his late 70s. He just needs to go home, spend what time he has remaining with his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and let's put this chapter behind us. You can't fix what's, what has happened, but we, there's no reason to continue it. There's no reason to compound uh, the, the violations. 
Great. We're going to stop there. That was Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge and lawyer for the political prisoner Leonard Peltier. And that was Chris Hedges, former foreign correspondent for the New York Times, author of many books and host of the weekly interview show On Contact that is distributed by RT. This program, The Framing of Leonard Peltier, was posted on January 30th, 2022. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.